Good afternoon. It's Friday the 15th of July 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Common News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the, well, joining me by video link, we've got Patrick Henningsen, Alex Thompson and Vanessa Bailey. So it's going to be a packed program. We'll just uh, very quickly uh, get started with uh, the Tory leadership election. Uh, another vote yesterday on this. And uh, so uh, Sula Braverman has uh, dropped out. Tom Tugendhat came uh, second from last, uh, but he's still... Uh, plying on if he can. Um, so, uh, well, what can we say? Let's have a look at what the uh, Financial Times had on this Tory leadership election tracker. Five candidates remain. Uh, of course, at the moment, it's the uh, Tory parli parliamentary party which is voting at this point. The question is, what's uh, the general public saying and what is the uh, Tory party, the broader Tory party saying? Well, Penny Mordaunt uh, still well ahead on that, according to uh, the data from Betfair. So, uh, that's, that's that. Now, in the meantime, of course, the uh, things are being pushed back to the autumn and the key uh, piece of legislation that's been pushed back to the autumn is the online safety bill. That's been postponed going through Parliament. It has been up to this point, uh, but it uh, won't uh, hear further debates and so on until the autumn. Uh, and while many people saying, continuing to say it should be killed off for good, including one of the Tory party uh, hopefuls, Kemi Badnock, who's saying that well, she tweeted out that the bill is in no fit state to become law. If I'm elected, she said, Prime Minister, I will ensure the bill doesn't overreach. Well, that caused quite a furore amongst the usual suspects, uh, not least the uh, wonderful Nadine Dorries, who said, uh, because uh, um, Badnock had gone on to say that uh, this was about legislating for hurt feelings. Uh, and Nadine Dorries uh, said, well, which part of the bill legislates for hurt feelings, Kemi? And uh, again, Dory's uh, absolutely, bearing in mind that she supports Liz Truss uh, in this campaign, per perhaps appropriately, because she hasn't got a clue about her own portfolio, it seems, uh, because this is the particular uh, part of the bill which uh, legislates for hurt feelings. It's all about harmful communications. It creates a new harmful communications offence. Uh, the offence will make it easier to prosecute online abusers by abandoning the requirement under the old offences uh, for content to fit within prescribed yet ambiguous categories such as grossly offensive, obscene or indecent. So if those are uh, ambiguous, then they've created a new ambiguous, ambiguous category. Uh, and so they say instead it's based on the intended psychological harm amounting to at least uh, serious distress to the person who receives the communication rather than requiring proof that harm was caused. Um, so uh, she doesn't have a clue what her own legislation says, it seems. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, in order to keep the momentum going against Kemi Badnock uh, today, she pushed out uh, this tweet talking about priority harm. She said, this is the full legal but harmful list on the online safety bill. Which part of this is unreasonable? Because this was part of Badnock's criticism as well. Uh, and uh, she pushed out a whole bunch of uh, graphics on this, uh, all about what's harmful for children being on the list and, uh, for example, pornography. Uh, content promoting self-harm, content promoting eating disorders, uh, legal suicide content, online abuse, cyberbullying, and so on. Uh, and uh, then content which is harmful to adults, for example, online abuse and harassment, circulation of real or manufactured intimate images without the subject's consent, uh, con content promoting self-harm. Uh, and at the bottom there, you can see harmful health content that is demonstrably false. Uh, and uh, it says, such as urging people to drink bleach to cure cancer. It also includes some health and vaccine misinformation and disinformation, uh, but it's not intended to capture genuine debate. 
uh, it lies. So anyway, but it's the one just above that, which caught Nadine Dorries out again, because it says they're uh, legal suicide content. This is uh, stuff that they're attempting to, they claim, uh, describe as priority, priority content, which would be made illegal by this bill. And it says, e.g. content this is not, that does not directly encourage a person to end their life, uh, which is illegal. Um, and, but unfortunately, Nadine Dorries had also tweeted out, uh, encouraging others to take their own life is what comes under that definition of harmful but still legal. Uh, but it's not legal as, that, as her own graphic uh, pointed out and as somebody who replied to her pointed out that in fact it's covered by the Suicide Act 1961. So Nadine Dorries does not, it seems, have a clue about what her own legislation does. Uh, and just coming back to this, uh, she said in her tweet, this is the full legal but harmful list in the online safety bill. Well, it may be the full list that's included in the bill, but it's not the full list uh, because as we've made the point before, uh, that the categories of legal but harmful content, content will be set out in secondary legislation and subject to approval by both Houses of Parliament. That last bit a bit um, uh, loose because, of course, uh, secondary legislation tends to be just a, a rubber stamp exercise and doesn't actually get any proper scrutiny by both Houses of Parliament. So, um, Alex, uh, maybe I could just ask for your comment first here because not only is uh, Nadine Dorries not qualified to decide who would be uh, the next prime minister. She's not qualified to uh, comment on her own legislation, it seems, uh, but it's no bad thing that that has been pushed back to the autumn now. You're muted. It does give people, Mike, a few more months in order to work out exactly what's going on here. And if you want to be legally incisive about it, uh, what's going on here is the mens rea creep the idea of who can decide a guilty mind is creeping. It always was a matter for juries. And now in all the British Isles jurisdictions, juries are being minimized. And it was a matter for judges, but still in the judiciary, still in the courts branch of government. Latterly, as David Scott, among others, have been reporting from Scotland, there have been moves for legislation to direct um, judges to direct juries to, to proclaim certain people guilty in their thoughts. Then in England, a particularly notorious case in Hull, uh, where an ex-policeman filmed the encounter, the next stage was that the police were briefed, you must try to establish people's guilty minds so that we can get a conviction. Here on the continent, it's routine for uh, attorneys general and their underlings, prosecutors to do it, who straddle the divide between the executive and the legislature. Now, Mike, the, the, the decision on who has a guilty mind, who intends to inflict psychological harm, thus uh, obviating the burden of proof requirement, that's now been completely devolved to not even the pure executive at ministerial level, but actually to mandarins who will be told what to do by international think tanks. We have seen that foundations like the Ford and Carnegie Foundation, Carnegie particularly, are very interested in lobbying Western governments transnationally on bringing in definitions for mens rea. So you will be tried effectively by international corporate standards and the judges and the juries will be there for show. Yeah, okay, thank you for that. And just to, to finish this off then, uh, I just want to make the point that while it's good that the online safety bill has been pushed back to the autumn and that gives people plenty of time to start getting campaigning against it, it can't or it shouldn't be taken out of the context of all the other really horrendous uh, legislation which is either going through Parliament over the next several months or has already gone through in the last several months. Uh, and Alex, it's, it, this all has to be fought as a block rather than uh, piecemeal one at a time. 
Yes, absolutely, it does. But it's got to that tricky stage where there's the the slide that you've just shown has got a dozen bills, and this is going to be very uh, difficult as a judgment call for people who see the the threat here uh, to name all these without seeming like bug-eyed loons, uh, simply because of the amount of detail. And I think Pat wants to come in on that point as well. Uh, Patrick. Yeah, um, the the main point here is, you know, uh, speech regulation, regulating speech is you can't separate speech from thought. And I think Alex alluded to that um, earlier, you know, then you're into the business, the government's in the business of thought regulation. You can't separate these two things. Uh, speech is a, is, is a representation, a manifestation of what you're thinking. Um, this is why traditionally governments don't get involved in regulating speech, at least not in democratic or so-called free societies. It's a total slippery slope. Uh, it's a bottomless pit. How long they start drawing up lists and they start drawing up guides and it doesn't end. It's a bureaucratic nightmare. Not only that, it's not only about hurting the feelings of individuals. The, if the government's feelings are hurt, if ministers' feelings are hurt because people are poking fun at their policies or they're pointing to someone, something they call Russian disinformation uh, that goes against whatever the state policy is on Ukraine, for instance, which is what the government's currently doing, and basically attacking any media outlets, foreign media outlets that criticize their policies, and that's a threat to national security because the government's feelings are hurt. Uh, because they can't have an open debate about whether about the efficacy or the credibility of their policies. That's exactly where we're at, at right now, actually. And imagine if that becomes standard uh, and becomes uh, legislation. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, Patrick uh, move on to uh, COVID. Uh, and uh, well, uh, do we have a comeback? That's the big question here. Some people are very excited about the prospects of a comeback for COVID. It's it's government's best friend, uh, as you know. Nobody loves COVID more more than this particular government leader here. We can't tell who she is. She's wearing a mask, so that's the question: is is Coroni back? Is this a return of Coroni? If you look at mainstream media right now, it's wall to wall stories about variants and surges in cases okay let's just take a look at what some of those are so obviously china's front and center on this they're pursuing a zero covid policy we all saw the scenes from shanghai uh, last month so now they're going into regional lockdowns there's also uh the government's reserving the power to possibly freeze people's access to bank accounts and things like this in rebellious regions. We've seen reports alluding to that possibility. If not, that might be happening uh, in some parts of China. But if we just carry on here. So the nightclub industry is basically devastated. And this is an article here by Al Jazeera talking uh, to an, an owner, bar owner, the entertainment industry in Shanghai is basically destroyed. Uh, so they're 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 pursuing a zero COVID policy, and you know you can say what you want about where we're at, but you have to remember when this all kicked off back in the spring of 2020, all of our governments, and they're on record as admitting this, Hancock and everybody else, saying they looked to China for inspiration. They were so impressed with how China dealt with. Uh, the virus, and they imposed lockdowns, and we effectively in Italy, starting with Italy, Spain, UK, the rest of Europe, the United States, everyone's kind of riffing, copying China in that respect. And so the bar owners here in this, in, in the entertainment industry, they're not booking any tours, no live music, because they think, why should we invest or do anything there um, if it's just going uh, to get shut down? 
So that's a, a big part of cultural life, a big part of quality of life, basically under threat, gone. And if we just uh, advance to the next uh, quote there on that. So they think bars or clubs are only for fun and should be closed. That's how the government, that's how the owners are viewing where the government's coming from on this. So bar owners believe that for Beijing, there isn't a good place for bars, clubs, entertainment in the future. So preferring the virtual option, we all we were all there before. Uh, so if we carry on on this talking point here, let's look at the Western coverage. This is Washington Post from this week. The BA.5 variant, apparently it's a relation of Omicron. I mean, whatever, it's spreading according to mainstream media. The risks of a coronavirus reinfections grows and we carry on uh, from that. Another one, we've got the Wall Street uh, Journal as well. And they're saying uh, that uh, a reprieve on COVID-19 is fading now because of the uh, onset of this new uh, BA.5 subvariant. It's supposedly taking over. The amazing thing is that uh, it seems like the war in Ukraine had scared the variants away uh, for the last four and a half months, something like this. We're in the fifth month now of the conflict in Ukraine. And the, all the variants were afraid. They sort of receded. They're hiding. I think now that Ukraine is basically subsiding in, in terms of the forefront of the, uh, the, the virtue priorities of the West, the variant has taken this as a signal to make a comeback. And so this is why you're seeing the emergence of the Omicron variant. You think I sound ridiculous. I'm just really going by the mainstream narratives. So where does this end? Biden officials are pushing to offer a second booster shot for all adults, or that could be a third booster shot if you've already had your second booster shot. So it, all roads lead to vaccines and in vaccine passports, as we'll show you uh, in Europe um, here. So let's take a look at where the vaccine issue is. This is very disturbing for a lot of people. The FDA is now pushing this new framework program. They will not require clinical trial data uh, to authorize the, quote, redesign of COVID boosters for various variants, okay? So they've, they're, they're lifting the regulatory regimes altogether, a total free-for-all. Obviously, Moderna and Pfizer love this. Bill Gates is pushing for this. All of those types of stakeholders think this is perfectly fine. In fact, they've been calling for this since the beginning of this sort of COVID crisis and the vaccine rollouts. They just wanted to kind of get rid of all of it. So that so that, that's the question. Is COVID back? Is COVID back? It certainly looks like it. It certainly looks like there's a, a campaign in the media to uh, elevate it into the public consciousness for the fall and the winter. And if you think about it, it's the best tool that governments have to keep people uh, from going onto the streets and protesting. And if you think about the economic situation that people are facing right across the Northern Hemisphere and the world, quite frankly, um, they actually have great reason and cause to protest right now. And so a, a pandemic would be incredibly convenient for a lot of governments. We should all look to China as our guiding light uh, and look at the scenes in Shanghai. And our governments are very excited when they look at those scenes. They think, wow, if only we had that level of control, maybe we need to get to work this winter and fall. The problem is there's gonna be a lot of pushback against it um, because a lot of people have had a taste of freedom. Again, they remember what the old normal looks like uh, and maybe they're not so keen to go back there. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, you probably commented a little bit on this on your last program. Dr. Teodros uh, is at it. I, we chose this uh, Wales Online because it's got the little Ukrainian heart up there. I, 
that's nice. So just don't lose sight of Ukraine uh, in your concern here. That So the WHO is basically saying we need to get back to masks. We need to get back to social distancing. We need to get back to restrictions because COVID deaths are on the increase. Cases are on the increase. We shouldn't get lackadaisical now uh, because the virus hasn't gone away. The global pandemic is still raging, according to the WHO and its head, Dr. Teodros, uh, a person whose face a lot of people are uh, get very uncomfortable when they start seeing him appear in the media. Here he is right here. He's a director general handpicked by Bill Gates. This is what he has to say uh, about the situation. I'm concerned that cases of COVID-19 continue to rise, putting further pressure uh, and stretched on the stretched health systems and health workers. I'm also concerned about an increased trend in deaths. What could that increase be? You know, I don't know. They might be talking about sub-decimal points of increases. It doesn't matter. It's That's the talking point. And he's saying new waves of the virus demonstrate again that COVID-19 is nowhere near over. As the virus pushes us, uh, we must push it back. So again, we're still in a raging pandemic. I mean, who knew? Uh, certainly I've been to places uh, around the UK recently. Nobody's in a pandemic. Nobody thinks they're in a pandemic, uh, but you can still get uh, banned from Facebook uh, if you say that, which I did a couple weeks ago for seven days. Um, so we're in a much better position than, than at the beginning of the pandemic. Of course, uh, there's been a lot of progress. And finally, Dr. Teodros, with his words of wisdom, uh, he's not a medical doctor, but he's a doctor of something. I'm not sure what. Uh, we have a safe and effect. We have safe and effective tools that prevent infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. What are those tools? I'm not sure. Is he talking about masks? Is he talking about the vaccines that don't prevent infections or hospitalizations or deaths that maybe arguably could be causing injuries and deaths? Is that what he's talking about? I'm not sure. However, we should not take them for granted. None of this really adds up or makes any sense. And there's a nice little propaganda bump here. Uh, this is from one of the articles talking about this. You remember all this stuff that our governments spent billions of pounds and dollars to gaslight us with? Here's just just a reminder. You know, we're ready uh, to to make history, sort of thing. That was that was the talking point. This is a historical pandemic. We all need to sort of solidarity, get together, unite under this banner of saving each other uh, from the pandemic. And we actually paid for that propaganda. We're paying for it now. Uh, in terms of the COVID relief cash. We're paying for it in terms of hyperinflation. And they want to do this all over again, pay people to stay home, run up the deficit more. You know, So th this is where the establishment's going. This is where the WHO's going. This is where our mainstream press is going. The question is, is this where our politicians can go? Because it's not clear that they can go there again. It's not clear everywhere. They will try it certainly looks like it, take, taking uh, France as a good example. Um, and But can they actually pull that off? The press are on board, the WHOs, the, 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 the international organizations, they're locked in. They'll happily do this again. But can our governments actually pull this off and stage another pandemic again? Um, okay, thank you, Patrick. Uh, Vanessa, did you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to mention, we're talking about sub-sub-variants, right? I mean, that's how viruses work, but each sub-variant is weaker than the original virus, or am I completely misreading the science there? I know we get a bit 
bogged down in science, but that was my understanding of viruses from day one. Second thing, I think the interesting point here is this, uh, why is it coming up now, just as they're also announcing uh, 40 degrees plus heat waves across Europe and UK and, and telling people not to travel. So the focus actually seems to be on not traveling, not necessarily on the virus as such, because in those kind of temperatures, one would assume also that a virus isn't going to do particularly well. Viruses normally come into their own in, in September, October, when it starts to get cold and miserly and all the rest of it, right? I mean, this the insanity of these narratives is, is just quite staggering. So for me, the, the focus here seems to be rather than, COVID is just a tool to lock down. The weather at the moment is being used as a tool to lock down. Nobody seems to remember 2003. We're being advised not to travel because a heat wave's coming. So something, something's in the pipeline for which we are being, in Soften one way up. or another, locked down. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And uh, well, just to to reinforce this a little bit, I just wanted to put this article from the Guardian on screen. The headline is "1,400 Graves Dug at Mariupol Cemetery Since Mid-May." Images suggest. Um, so they're saying 1,400 people that have. They're saying these are mostly people that have been dug out from under rubble and so on. So I just thought, well, hold on a second. Uh, these are people that would not have uh, otherwise have passed away other than through the conflict. So let's call these excess deaths. So this is excess mortality, 1,400 uh, since uh, Maria, since uh, mid-May, so that's about eight weeks or so, uh, and that uh, gets a headline in The Guardian. But The Guardian not really talking about the excess mortality in the UK, so uh, we've had this on the screen this week, but let's just uh, remind ourselves what the Office for National Statistics said. The number of deaths registered in the UK in the week ending 1st July 2022 was 11,828. Uh, which was 12% above the five-year average. That's 1,278 excess deaths. So we had roughly the same number of excess deaths in the UK uh, in one week, as the Guardian headline is talking about in Mariupol in eight weeks. Um, and uh, so let's just uh, reinforce that. So, uh, so the question then is, why are people dying in this country with almost no comment, it seems, uh, in terms of excess mortality? And let's just remind ourselves that the uh, NHS, of course, doing very, very badly at the moment. This was the Nuffield Trust tweeting this out earlier today uh, that uh, Sarah Scobie from the Nuffield Trust says that today's NHS performance statistics indicate just how severely emergency care is struggling. Uh, those suffering for heart attacks or strokes are waiting on average nearly three times longer, uh, brackets 52 minutes, uh, than they should, brackets 18 minutes. And of course, that's only a fraction of what's going on. So um, we're seeing excess mortality taking place right across the world, uh, and it's not COVID-related excess mortality, um, as acknowledged by the ONS and others, uh, as a result of Patrick government policy. Uh, and yet we make a huge, and I'm not saying that a deal shouldn't be made about people that have died uh, as a result of the, the uh, conflict in Ukraine, but to basically ignore people dying uh, at home uh, and not really, uh, focus on this topic while at the main, main, uh, in the meantime pushing the COVID narrative that you've been talking about in the last uh, segment. That's uh, pretty heinous. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've been pointing this out for a long time now, what, a couple of years? Uh, we've been pointing out all of the effects of, of these deliberate government policies 
vis-a-vis the pandemic and what the knock-on effects, the negative effects, the excess debts, etc. And it's all of these problems stem from government policy, whether it's COVID uh, excess deaths, whether it's ec- uh, an economic crash, uh, hyperinflation, uh, the situation right now uh, in, in Ukraine, and also green energy policies, which we, we might talk about later. These are all deliberate government policies, and nobody wants to own that. They want you to think that all of these crises have emerged naturally or organically and are the fault of some other external actor, be it Vladimir Putin, Viet Caroni and the sub 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 variant, uh, the latest sub variant, or uh, something else, climate change, for instance. Uh, yeah. And the, the, all of these, we have no choice. We just have to pursue these policies to save you and keep you safe and save democracy, etc. Well, I'm glad it'll be keeping me safe. But anyway, let's let's move on. Uh, and uh, France. Uh, now, yesterday was Bastille Day. Patrick, uh, what was going on last night? Well, we, we have a video clip from Paris. Uh, this is the National Day in France. It's a big day uh, very for patriots. It's really the, the, the biggest day of the year. And here's the scene from Paris last night. We'll go ahead and play this. So you recognize that tune, anybody? That's the uh, Eurovision Song Contest winning uh, from Ukraine. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so France, they, they can't even have their own national day anymore. They've had to give that up for Zelensky in Ukraine. So this, this, is, this is not going over too well with a lot of uh, French people. And this is also reflected uh, in the political uh, developments in the country recently. Uh, but before we get to that, We'll see this is a European uh, problem and politics is re-emerging uh, in European countries. Uh, Mario Draghi um, was uh, forced or he resigned effectively because he lost his coalition. Um, he, there was a vote of no confidence, which he survived. But the Five Star Movement, which is a populist uh, coalition uh, in Italy, they've withdrawn their support for him. The president has not accepted Draghi's uh, resignation. What does that mean? Uh, that means it's, it's possible we could see an early election in September uh, in, in Italy. But, but what does this speak to a more broad issue uh, is that populism is now coming back into, into the scene and you're getting politics into parliamentary uh, government. And so this, this rule by executive uh, that has been the norm over the last few years uh, in many European countries and some of the flimsiest of coalitions that have kept certain people uh, into power, uh, some of these things are fraying. And as a direct result, again, of policy decisions, now the emergency has reside, uh, receded for COVID or the Ukraine war is not the emergency that uh, the politicians painted it as a few months ago. People are starting to realize this now and where some of the power centers are now feeling it now. So this is, I think, a big, uh, a big development. Okay, so let's uh, just briefly talk about, uh, uh, well, the end of presidential monarchy is how you're headlining this? Well, this, 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 the, the Fifth Republic in France has 
become a type of a presidential monarchy uh, under Macron. He, he, he rebranded his party uh, in March to Ensemble, Ensemble. And so there was a big legislative defeat for Macron uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so what does that mean? That means that the president is now on uh, shaky ground uh, more so than before. He won the election. He won the mandate. It's very unusual in France that uh, as after winning re-election, they lose a legislative mandate. Maybe it never happened before um, in history. Um, so there was also a massive defeat uh, coming from the, the right and an unusual co populist coalition of the left coalition in, in France and also uh, from the right as well, uh, led by Marine Le Pen. So you have this unusual... Uh, situation uh, whereby the left coalition, the right coalition have come together to get a kind of a majority in the legislation. Um, so Macron could have been out if Le Pen had decided to weigh in on this vote of no confidence recently for whatever reason. This is kind of a you know, a, a scandal for some people, maybe not for others. Uh, the national rally abstained uh, from that and so it gave Macron uh, a, a lease, a new lease on life. But Le Pen, with this new 89-seat um, stronghold in the in the French Parliament, has come back and attacked the pass sanitaire. That's the vaccine passport, the health pass. And if we go uh, to a headline here uh, in the French press, uh, we'll see, and we can uh, translate that. There, uh, there's the translation. So the National Assembly has rejected the return of the health pass to and from overseas territories. So that and that would go for France um, as well. So that's that's Article Two of this legislation, which is specifically to do with the pass sanitaire. And I think that Le, Le Pen is well aware that this is the that's the hook. That's the important hook in the vaccine passport or the health pass. And she knows and her party knows and they realize that that is that's essentially the same as the EU digital wallet or the green pass. It's changed names in Brussels many times. So they're going after that specifically. Uh, and this is a huge defeat for Macron, who was hoping to use this. And it is the most important hook in terms of restricting freedoms is the past sanitaire. So now this is going to go to the Senate and what's it's going to go for. It can go for a debate now and then it will go to the Senate. Uh, and so there's a lot of support for Le Pen's uh, position on this. A lot of people in France are supporting this. They don't like the vaccine passport or the past sanitaire. Uh, so that's where that's heading now. So this is an interesting reemergence with Melanchon and the left coalition together on the same page with Le Pen on this issue uh, and Macron's back on his heels. So what it, what could this mean? This means that politics has re-entered uh, the French parliament. So more of a fourth republic uh, situation that's kind of re-emerged now. This is new. This is not good news for McKinsey and Macron and this kind of rule by executive um, that's been happening. If you look at the laws passed by Macron, something crazy, I don't know, more than 45 out of 50 laws done under a state of emergency. So that's what this bill is. It's setting up a state of emergency uh, from August 1st or something like this, that where they can just press the button uh, if they need to. And I think Le Pen, National Rally, the other members of this new kind of 
populist coalition realize that this is uh, possibly what this government has. Macron needs an emergency, he needs a crisis in order to maintain uh, his power, his uh, ruling by executive, as it were. Um, so they've seen this as the Achilles heel and they're absolutely going for it. So this is a big thing. If, it, if this doesn't work in France, it, it can't be normalized across the EU. It, so wherever Germany and France go, and Italy too, to some extent, um, that's where that's going to be the future of Europe for policy. So this is not good news for Ursula von der Leyen and for Brussels. Um, they'll I don't know how they're going to react or how the deep state's going to react uh, on this in France. But um, this is a major defeat for this kind of technocracy agenda, this World Economic Forum, McKinsey and Co. Uh, kind of PR generated uh, new technocratic agenda. So yeah. no pass sanitaire, no digital wallet effectively. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Alex, any thoughts briefly on that? Just for those who aren't aware of the uh, constitutional differences, Pat is quite correct to say France, Germany, Italy is the triangle, but they have very different setups. Now, France, uh, as Pat alluded to since 1958, has had this now teetering model of a fifth republic, which is US style executive rule. Uh, by the president, uh, who have directly appoints the prime minister and the rest of the cabinet to do his bidding. Germany and Austria, uh, of course, they had to get rid of their um, uh, imperial rule, and so there was it was unthinkable to bring anything back that resembled a king. So they have absolute figurehead, titular uh, presidents who are appointed not by the federal chancellors, the prime minister equivalent, but by the party system. Italy, somewhere in the middle, Sergio Mattarella, this long-serving dinosaur of the establishment left, not the old. Uh, conscientious left, but the sort of uh, nominally Christian establishment left. Mattarella has said to um, Mario Draghi last night, the British equivalent would be, well, jolly decent of you to fall on your sword, old, old bean, but we need continuity, so you can't go just yet. Of course, the, the silent part, parallel to that is Britain, because that's what's been said to Boris Johnson to trigger the race that we've seen at the start of the news, because this is going to drag on into the autumn. Trouble is, in Britain, we don't see a President Mattarella saying this uh, and withholding a resignation until uh, the, the, uh, the mess has been swept away. Uh, instead, we, we have to guess whether the lead was taken by uh, the cabinet office, the Tory grandees, or the donors to the Tory party. Pretty much all the same thing, the City of London, but we don't get to see it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's move on then. Um, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us there, or you could uh, pick up something at the UK column shop. But in any case, do please uh, share anything that you see on the various platforms. Uh, right. Let's move on just uh, to economic stuff. Uh, and Patrick, the uh, headline here is the age of stupid. Well, just getting into the economic situation, we have to kind of admit at this point, you know, look at look at the spiraling inflation, look at the economic uh, prospects for the next six months, the next year, the next two, three, four, five years. These are three specific factors have made this possible. One, of course, the most recent is sanctions, trying to cancel Russia, the world's largest um, uh, overall commodities producer. Uh, trying to cancel them, trying to embargo them. This has had a huge backlash against the Western economies, uh, Europe, North America, and, and many others. So it's backfired badly. That's a specific policy that was pursued with vigor by our politicians, by Boris Johnson, his government, 
by Joe Biden, his government, and they managed to strong arm um, the rest of Europe into that. And of course, the U.S. is benefiting greatly with incredible prospects for LNG sales right up to the year 2050. So not everybody's unhappy about this situation, of course. But it, the, the other policy on there is COVID. We can't ignore the fact that the uh, huge proportion of money in circulation was printed in the last two years, two and a half years as a, as a response for COVID. Okay. That's driving hyperinflation as well, that mad quantitative easing. And the third thing on that image there, of course, is green energy policies. So, uh, and, and you, look, you can't uh, fight all of these wars simultaneously. Uh, and this is what the West is attempting to do. And it's, it's now we're seeing the results of it and it's a total collapse. They don't want to own it. They don't want to take responsibility for it. At the moment, the governments are trying to push it back on the people and saying, we need to raise taxes uh, and oh, actually we'll print up some vouchers for you uh, if your heating bills too much. And if another, God forbid, if another pandemic comes, there's going to be another round of this money printing and paying people, paying businesses compensation for closing and all of the rest of it. So again, we, I don't think uh, our, the governments we have are not learning their lessons. They're just going from crisis to crisis. They're quite happy to keep doing that. And until enough people can identify what the problem is, which is government policies, decisions that were made by politicians, um, then this is just going to continue and it's going to go from bad to worse. This is a total disaster and it's their making. And they're trying to blame everybody else for things that they've done and the disaster they've created. Uh, and uh, Alex, uh, part of the uh, response to that uh, we're seeing in terms of what's going on in the Netherlands with the farmers. Yes, we're going, we're going to bring on screen now um, a slide from just under five years ago, carried by DutchNews.nl, uh, which is an English language website for internationals in the Netherlands and abroad. And uh, it's, it carries the news from October the 30th 2017, that investors, key point here, Dutch investors, were launching a new marketing strategy for the Netherlands and its neighbours, which are Belgium and Germany. The Netherlands, Belgium, or northern Belgium at least, and Germany in the form of the neighbouring state, Nordrhein-Westfalen, the most populous uh, state, uh, a Bundesland in Germany, had this idea, which uh, we, we'll put that on screen uh, again in a moment so you can see it. Uh, it, it consists of a three concentric rings of transport lines, Greater Amsterdam and then the Greater Randstad. And the third outer ring is basically Antwerp, Cologne and Groningen in the far north of the Netherlands, turning the whole of the Netherlands and half of Belgium, the Flemish half, Flanders into a strip city, effectively, uh, undoing decades of, the, of, of planning in which even the core Midwest of the country, the Randstad, the built-up area, was supposed to have a so-called green heart, breaking up the major cities from each other. This has come back to the fore because Dutch farmers have got wind of it. So what was being said then? Uh, a group of institutional investors, that's an interesting code, which I think a lot of UK column viewers have cottoned on to now, have presented the joint forces to present the Netherlands, the whole of the country, that is, plus parts of Belgium and Germany. Well, they're being spared. Only parts of them are going to become a city, are going to become a single city network named Tri-State City. And people can freeze the screen and read the whole thing. But it actually says in terms here at the bottom of the screen that the Netherlands is going going to be treated, this is five years ago, as an urbanized delta. And in order to do battle with Asian titans, um, the um, uh, various uh, conurbations as they currently exist in the Netherlands have clubbed together 
uh, according to this project website of 2017 and say and saying in this typically Dutch oligarchic way, we're too fragmented. Our people are too inefficient. We must present ourselves as a single city. Why is this relevant? It's because Prime Minister Mark Rutte, in old footage, which has now resurfaced during the farmers' protests, has said frankly on camera uh, that it is quite a lot easier to build over farmland to house more uh, brain workers or whatever they are, drones, than it is to get planning permission uh, to increase or, or acceptance by the people to increase the population density in the existing urban cores and uh, suburban areas. Uh, there is pushback, however. This uh, title, Tubantia, which is for the region of Twente, which a lot of people will know from the football club out there. This is the, the area around the hard, uh, hard scrabble cities of Enschede, uh, Almelo, Ermelo, uh, with the you know the famous sort of industrial profile and 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 battling football team. Well, the regional paper for that uh, is reporting here in the form of a conservative Christian member of the effectively the county council, although it's a proper province with its own parliament in the Dutch scheme. Uh, a member called Gerthan ten Bolser, who is a member for the Overijssel provincial states or or a regional parliament. He has said that not just his party but others, and the region is very conservative in the broadest sense. There's lots of conservative Catholics and conservative secular people as well. This region is not going to force a single farmer to be forced out of their farm. Uh, because uh, just bringing that back on screen again, and this is from a few years ago, this is what's doing the rounds among the Dutch farming protesters and their allies. Look at that. The Netherlands is, is being presented as, as if there was nothing there but high density travel networks. And you know that the first thing you, you, you see is, oh, when you get up to Frankfurt and Paris, there's a bit of green space. So you can imagine what kind of uh, concern this is causing. In this sort of metro or subway style, underground style map, the Randstad core cities, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, The Hague, Utrecht, are being presented as some circle line to use a London equivalent, you know, sort of a, a ring road. Uh, there's, there's nothing there. And right in the heart of the, uh, the Randstad, Gouda or Gouda, right in the middle, Gouda to the Americans, I think, um, that, that's about the greenest that the Netherlands gets, but it's going to be the hub of the hub. Uh, this is pretty shocking stuff. So you can see that the Dutch farmers are up in arms about it. But as I say, um, the globalist policy has shot itself in the foot here because orders clearly came from WEF and who knows above them, banking uh, institutions, to force this through. Uh, the globalist politicians in The Hague who dominate the lower house of parliament, the house of representatives, but who are having increasing amounts of flack there from dissident parties, suddenly threw up their hands in horror and said, we're going to devolve this to the provinces, the counties, effectively, the states within the, the Netherlands to sort out. The Netherlands isn't a federal country. It's a decentralized uh, unitary state. So there's a, a deal of involvement by these provincial parliaments. Now, two of the 12 provinces, both of them rural, um, eastern, uh, largely conservative, very largely conservative provinces, and more can follow, like Flavorland, have said, well, if the buck stops with us, then it's not going to happen on our watch. Uh, so watch this space. Whether this can be pushed down to a further sub-national level is uncertain because there's only one level below that, the municipalities. So it looks like there's some kind of an, a logical end here to this globalist policy of going under the nation state or doing an end run around national sovereignty, as Richard Haas expressed it in that famous uh, article in Foreign Policy uh, in 1974. Okay, thanks, Alex. Uh, well, look, let's uh, move on to uh, war and, uh, well, <laughs> Kaliningrad, first of all. So uh, the headline uh, broke a couple of days ago, Lithuania will allow sanctioned Russian goods trade to Kaliningrad. Uh, they have backed away. Um, so this article saying European Union member uh, Lithuania will allow sanctioned Russian goods to transit the territory on the way to Russia's uh, Kaliningrad enclave, its foreign minister said on Wednesday, reversing the policy 
after new European Commission guidelines. And what were those guidelines? Well, uh, they, the EU said that uh, the sanctions, the trade sanctions, should not apply to transport between Russia and its enclave so long as the volumes do not exceed uh, the averages that they have uh, uh, transported over the last three years. Uh, so they're determined that Russia will not be allowed to send anything to Kaliningrad, which may be above what is considered normal. Uh, and uh, so that's the EU has effectively done a U-turn on this. And very, very briefly, Patrick, uh, the question in my mind was, uh, was this uh, as a result of uh, the concerns within the European Union that uh, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which has currently been switched off for maintenance, uh, would not be switched back on again? You're muted. Yes, uh, this is now back on the table. Uh, so a lot of people thought that's, that's it for the uh, Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, and that's not the case. There's a lot of talk in Germany now uh, about, and there are people making sort of very subtle moves and positions politically. Uh, and industry is also very concerned. And they are talking about the possibility of, yeah, resuming uh, gas supplies via uh, Nord Stream 1, possibly revamping uh, Nord Stream 2. So, I mean, there are, there, they are getting supplies from Nord Stream 1, but Germany has this plan to taper it off over a period of time. And But Nord, Nord Stream 2 is, is, is a non-starter. That's now being rethought. Uh, so I think the penny's beginning to drop with a lot of German uh, industry thinking we can't invest, we can't think ahead, we can't plan ahead if we don't have secure, not just secure energy source, but a secure and stable price. And it has to be an affordable price. And so what, what's going to happen now is they're going to end up paying more for uh, it'll it'll probably end up in a year's time. We'll be having this conversation and Germans will be, be paying more for Russian energy. That's where this is going to end up. Um, the only other choice for Germany is full deindustrialization and abject poverty and uh, a trade deficit. Can you imagine Germany with a trade deficit? So that's that's where certain people in Brussels went to head. I think the thing in Kaliningrad, I think this was a, a, a staged provocation. I think Lithuania was goaded by Washington uh, and by NATO as well, by Brussels, to try this on. Um, now, they want to see what how Russia is going to react. They also want to see the possibility or send a signal to Moscow that uh, Europe and the, you know, the, the Great West is is prepared to open up a second front in its provocations, a Baltic front in its provocations against Russia and to try to tie it up, hamstring it somehow. I think it's not a good move. It's I think it's it's hugely backfired. And it's also a declaration of war. When you when you do a blockade, that's any other time in history that's regarded as a declaration of war. But they're they're playing aloof about it in Brussels and Washington. Most people in Washington can't find Lithuania on a map or Kaliningrad for that matter. So they, they'll probably learn about it from the New York Times. Um, but Europeans should know better. Yeah, indeed. Uh, okay, Vanessa, let's uh, move on to the, the Middle East then. And uh, beginning with uh, uh, the headline that a key Islamic State figure was killed in Syria uh, as a result of a drone strike, says the United States. Yeah, that has today been denied by ISIS itself, actually. <laughs> We'll run through the story anyway, because Patrick mentioned another front, but um, the Syrian front is rapidly coming back into focus. Uh, and I do wonder why we're being uh, given these other distractions, such as corona, weather, 
uh, travel disruptions, etc. And I do feel that something is building uh, here in Syria now. So that's why I wanted to go through this today and see how it all ties in with what's happening uh, in the Northwest with Israel and Iran, etc. So three days ago, I think, it, yeah, three days ago, um, these headlines were all over the place. Twitter was full of the news that uh, Maher al-Agal had been killed by a drone strike, a U.S. drone strike, and his second-in-command, Khaled Subeh, had also uh, been killed in the strike. I immediately picked up on the fact that there was very little evidence of, of a successful drone strike. I've witnessed drone strikes in Gaza. I've seen them happen in front of me. Uh, alleged Hamas uh, members going to work on their motorbike and being hit by an Israeli uh, drone literally on the street. It leaves an awful lot more mess uh, than this. And of course, who is first on the scene? of this alleged ISIS assassination by the US, none other than the terrorist auxiliary, the White Helmets, famous, of course, for their corroboration of US and UK foreign policy in Syria. That is their main purpose. They are the main evidence, in inverted commas, supplier to Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, etc. This is a tweet by Saad uh, Abedin, who's actually an Al Jazeera journalist, so certainly not with the government uh, in Syria, but a tweet, and she was the only one up on this. She said the only that has been identified is that of Khaled Subay, who not effectively ISIS, he actually belonged to the competitive factions to HTS or Al Qaeda uh, in the Northwest. So this is why this now begins to get a little bit interesting when I'll go into more details about what's happening right now in the Northwest. Um, of course, here it's just another example of a white helmet standing by a crater, supposedly gathering uh, sarin samples after the alleged Khan Shahun attack in 2017, wearing sandals and no real protective gear. So that's how reliable the white helmet evidence is, as if we needed any reminder of that. So what does Joe Biden um, say about all of this? Um, I'll read it from here because I can't see the screen. So effectively, he's, he's saying he's, he's praising the intelligence community. Um, he's claiming that it, the strike significantly degrades the ability of ISIS to continue their operations in the region. Of course, he ignores the fact that the ISIS is, effect, is effectively another proxy of the United States. Um, in the Northeast and in Iraq. Uh, and uh, he, he refers to the alleged killing of uh, al-Qurayshi in February, February of 2022, who had allegedly replaced al-Baghdadi, who we should remember was killed officially three times. Uh, so uh, he talks about it sending a powerful message to all terrorists who threaten our homeland, I'm not quite sure when there was last an ISIS attack on US territory uh, and or officially, and our interests around the world. I, I mean, this, the, the hypocrisy on this, again, is, is kind of off the scale. Mm. Um, so he then goes on and talks about the culmination of determined and meticulous intelligence work. This assassination didn't happen, right? and stands as testament to the bravery and skill of our armed forces, blah, blah, blah. The number of tweets that I saw going out with this 
saying God bless America indicates to me the gullibility of the American public. So let's look at the timing of this alleged strike. Why is Biden trying to distance himself or the US administration um, from its uh, collaboration with ISIS in Syria? He's now visiting Saudi Arabia, uh, and before that, he's in occupied Palestine, normally known as Israel. Uh, and here is his kind of opening gambit speech when he arrived to Yair Lapid, the prime minister. I say again, you need not be a Jew to be a Zionist. The fact is that since then, I've known every single prime minister, and it's been an honor form strong working relations with each of them. And now, this is my 10th visit. Every chance to return to this great country, where the ancient roots of the Jewish people date back to biblical times, is a blessing. Because the connection between the Israeli people and the American people is bone deep. We invest in each other. We dream together. Well, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's very little room for misinterpretation there. You don't have to be a Jew to be a, a Zionist. Uh, that's pretty much um, an admission that, that the relationship between the United States and the Zionist entity um, is as close as it, it has ever been. But what is interesting about this trip, of course, uh, yeah, Lapid is, is pushing the United States to take action against Iran. And, and, and what they're saying is diplomacy will not stop them. Biden is still towing the diplomacy line and claiming that force will be a last resort. Lapid is saying the only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. Now, of course, the nuclear program is very similar to the weapons of mass destruction in, in Iraq. We don't have any idea of what stage Iran is in its nuclear program development. Uh, any independent state has the right to develop a nuclear program in, in, in consideration of the global insecurity that is being fostered by the United States and its allies, including, of course, Israel. But let's have a look at now at this uh, Russian airstrike in Idlib, which was a few days ago. So prior to the alleged assassination of the ISIS leader. This is a strike on an Idlib terrorist uh, hideout, underground hideout, very similar, of course, to the claims of uh, underground hospitals that you will hear often in Western media and claims that Russia is targeting hospitals. In reality, what they are are underground cities in many uh, instances. And here, this was actually, according to intelligence on the ground here and according to Russian media reports, this was a drone factory. So this area, this enclave here, was producing underground drones to attack the Syrian Arab army in Russian positions and civilian positions. Now, I would assume that either Turkish experts are involved in this or NATO experts. We know, again, from sources on the ground, that NATO experts are enabling the terrorists to produce some kind of uh, basic chemical weapon, but it could also be that they were involved in this uh, development of uh, drone technology in Idlib by the terrorist group. So um, the, 
if we can move on, Mike. Yep. Sorry. Um, and also, um, I think this was on Monday, the Syrian Arab army killed the military leader of the Thawar al-Sham. Alex might be able to correct me, though. Uh, Ahmed al-Najjar last Monday. Um, now, why is this interesting? And this was what I was kind of leading to with all of this maneuvering now in the Northwest. What we have, and we'll come on to this with um, the next video, but not quite yet. Um, we have a situation where I believe Russia is maneuvering to force Turkey's hand to bring the terrorist groups under control and to restore sovereignty to Syria by ensuring Damascus is in control of all humanitarian supplies into Idlib. What is now happening is HTS Al-Qaeda is pushing back against this project. So there are now battles between HTS, Patrick, it's gangs and counter gangs. Um, there's battles now between HTS, uh, and Ar al Sham, Jabhat uh, al Shamia, all the groups that come under the Turkish umbrella are now battling against Al Qaeda, HTS, for influence uh, and power in Idlib. Of course, uh, Abu Mohammed al Jolani, the leader of Al Qaeda, very much sees himself as the future president of what he perceives will be the autonomous region of the Northwest. So what we have now is, is really a jostling for position between Turkish-backed uh, militants and Al-Qaeda who wish to, uh, to, to, to keep hold of their power base in the Northwest. So we're seeing clashes between the armed groups themselves, but we're also seeing an increase in clashes between the armed groups and Syrian Arab army positions. So things are definitely sort of hotting up in the Northwest. We also have uh, good intelligence on the ground that there is very probably going to be uh, a Zionist attack. It was expected last night. Uh, if it's not last night, it will be tonight. Um, again, this is because of Biden's presence uh, in uh, occupied Palestine. Uh, they want to show uh, a, a regional force to Biden. And the suggested targets are the coastal areas, so Tartus and Latakia, which brings them, of course, dangerously close um, to the Russian base at Haimamim in Tartus. What is also interesting is that on the 19th, it's been announced that uh, President Putin will be going to Tehran for a trilateral discussion between Turkey, Iran, uh, and Russia. Uh, Erdogan will be there. So that ties into what I've just been saying, that there is now a jostling um, for, for uh, recalibration of the Northwest from Russia's viewpoint in favor of Damascus, of course, and Russia is keen to see the situation calm down and, and finalized uh, to the benefit of both Russia and Syria. Uh, and of course, the claims in American media are that the reason for Putin's visit to Tehran is that Tehran is now suggesting it will supply drones to Russia for its war in Ukraine. So there you see the shaping of a narrative to further criminalize Iran if the nuclear deal can't be used to, to, to demonize Iran. Perhaps we will see the fact that it's coming on board and supplying weapons to, to Russia. This will be one of the reasons used by uh, Israel or the states to, to ramp up 
and escalate tensions against Iran. And of course, Iran is pushing back with its own uh, fairly bellicose rhetoric. So things are coming to to a fairly heated point here in Syria because Syria will be the target of any of those strikes, in my opinion. So um, it, moving on, we now have a sorry. Carry on. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, okay. we need to carry on, uh, Vanessa, if you don't mind. Sorry. Okay. Uh, no worries. Uh, so that leads me into this video of Dmitry Polyansky uh, at the UN uh, in Geneva talking about uh, the Babelhauer so-called humanitarian border crossing. Yeah. Uh, you said in there the page has been turned. Is that it? Is Russia done with this? Are you going to engage in any further negotiations? Let me remind you of how it all develops. So a year ago, uh, we all agreed the basis of our understanding was our uh, common position with the United States that humanitarian efforts in Syria needed improvement. And we agreed on the text of 2585, which uh, was uh, composed in the way that uh, we were all waiting for the uh, report of Secretary General in the midterm after six months. So the formula was uh, expired, uh, it will be extended subject to substantive report of Secretary General. I may be mistaken in the words, but something like this. When it came to the moment when it was about to be prolonged, uh, we said, uh, guys, we had some kind of homework which we agreed to do. You failed to do this homework. Uh, but we, we heard uh, things that were absolutely opposite uh, and breaking the trust that emerged at the beginning of these consultations. And they were said publicly. They, they sounded like uh, whatever Russia would like to do, uh, the resolution will be automatically extended for six more months. Uh, so it was a breach of trust, under, undermining of a trust, uh, for sure. So this year, we tried to learn this lesson, and we said, uh, okay, let's extend it, uh, let, let's put the formula that it is for six months, and then the council uh, formulate that there is a desire to extend it further uh, with the help of a resolution. So with a view to further extension, this is the phrase in our draft. What our American and uh, British and other colleagues are now trying to imply is that six equals to zero and that there is no will in, in this draft that we proposed to extend this resolution further. This is, this is totally a fail. I told you several times that my uh, arithmetic is not very bad, it's very good. So I think that six doesn't equal to zero. So we tried to learn this lesson right now, and we said that we uh, uh, propose a text of the resolution where we would take account of uh, everything that was done wrong for the first time, where we would reconfirm the commitment that we did one year ago, and we will have a good text, and then we all, in good faith, commit, in, uh, commit for extending this resolution and making our homework. What, now, what our Western colleagues are now trying to say is that we are not committed to doing our homework even after the six months. Why I wanted to play this, because of course Russia again has been criminalized over its alleged veto of the humanitarian crossing at Babelhawa. I won't, I don't have time to go into too much detail, but effectively Babelhawa is under control of Al-Qaeda when uh, Russia reduced it down to, to a six-month uh, extension 
it insisted on a secretary general audit effectively to because it knows exactly what is going on in Babel Hawa. The goods are coming in, Al-Qaeda are trading them. It's providing revenue for Al-Qaeda. Weapons are also coming through this crossing, just as they were previously with all the formerly, with the formerly open um, border crossing. So uh, the fact is uh, that the West was dishonest in its uh, acceptance of that six months uh, extension. Uh, no homework was done, so the Secretary General didn't provide the substantive audit. So all that Russia has been saying, it's basically, you know, it's basically saying, no, we have to adhere to the principle that we set out in the beginning. But what's important here for me is Russia won this war, it won this discussion. And why did it win it? Because it had the backing of a number of states, even NATO states, that formerly I don't think would have come out publicly in defense of a Russian resolution against uh, the US, UK, France, and EU states, for example. So effectively, what has now happened, Russia has got exactly what it wanted, a six-month extension, um, the promise of a Secretary General report. Of course, we know that that probably won't happen. But what is interesting, even India came out and said, look, we have to stop the politicization of humanitarian aid. It's insisting uh, on humanitarian aid being allowed to the Syrian government, which is a first. China is pushing hard on the back of this discussion for sanctions to be lifted on Syria. And of course, as I said, Russia's um, agenda here is to effectively, in the end, close down the humanitarian crossing through Turkey which is under the control of Al-Qaeda, and transfer it to Damascus so that Damascus is delivering humanitarian aid to its people in Idlib through various uh, safe areas on, on the uh, Russian-Turkey-controlled side, um, which was the, the ceasefire brokered previously. And this will mean that the UN will be forced to supply those humanitarian uh, equipment and so on to Damascus for delivery to Idlib. So this is what Russia is pushing for here. And of course, as I said, the containment of the terrorist entities uh, within Idlib, and that may well be part of the discussion um, next week in Tehran. Okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. And uh, right, let's move on, Alex, uh, to Armenia. You've been in Armenia for the last couple of weeks. Uh, how has it been? You're muted. Sorry about all the mute failures today. Baking hot, up to 40 degrees, uh, and it's in the same climate zone as where Vanessa is in Damascus. Um, much to say, perhaps in extra time, about the geopolitics of, the, of Armenia and the Armenian people at the current uh, juncture. But in brief, Armenia is a, a strategic ally of Russia's, but by no means a client state. There is a lot of, uh, sort of we say, low-level suspicion about what Russia is up to economically and politically. But of course, the Armenians need Russia for the very reasons Vanessa has been outlining about Turkish expansionism, revanchism, as it's called locally. Uh, but I was there to accompany the senior scholar of Sunni Islam, Sheikh Imran Hussein. If you don't know who he is and why he's become interested in the Eastern Christian world, then go to ukcolumn.org, find topics and then faith, and you'll find a three-part interview with us 
um, uh, with him about that. Uh, these are the videos from his YouTube channel, the most recent ones, if you go to videos and arrange by recent, which cover so far what the Sheikh has been doing in Yerevan from left to right. It's in newest first. There's a visit to the Titernakabert or Swallow Fortress um, uh, Genocide Memorial and uh, Museum. Uh, very moving, with a statement at the end, repudiating the Ottoman sins, as it were. Um, then there's an interview with Noyantapan, or Noah's Ark, which is a major platform for the Armenian diaspora, particularly in the USA, centred around Glendale, California. The third one along, which we're about to hear a clip of, with Gevord Virats interpreting, well-known to UK column viewers through, through my Eastern Approaches uh, sub-brand, uh, this lecture is to theology students and exiled Western Armenians, and I'll get into the politics of that more in extra time. And the fourth one, recorded while the Sheikh was in Yerevan, is an appeal uh, to prevent uh, violence between the uh, Muslim Albanians and Christian um, Macedonians, a Slavic people in what's now called North Macedonia. But here is the highlight of, uh, and I'm sorry for my own wobbly recording here, I was an emergency backup cameraman and was struggling with a cough and had no tripod, but here is a, a bit of a footage of the Sheikh presenting in, a, in his challenging but, uh, but cordial style, as he's, he's well known to do, uh, the question of the economics that, we're, we, that we have to face and whether it is acceptable to biblical Christians or Quranic Muslims. How did he get the mountain of go of of bread? In space nearest that's of Aitlera Hatsi. Number one Arachina The banking system. Banka in Hamakark. They don't lend you money simply to get rich. Nerank Dram Chentalis Martkans Miain Vor Nerank Harustanan. They lend you money to enslave you. Nerang dramentalis markants vorpisis terkatsnen martun. Number two, not just the banking system, but the monetary system. Yev yerkorta watch me ain bankain hamakarka. Al naev tara dramain hamakarka. When Jesus comes back. Will he use U.S. dollars or euros? Yerp Jesus Christos veradarna inka dolare oktagorzelute euro. Answer me. Do you have an answer? When Jesus comes back, will he use U.S. dollars or euros? If you are Christian. And if you have any truth in your heart, you'll know that this monetary system is bogus, it's fraudulent, it's a vehicle of exploitation and impoverishment and enslavement of mankind. Powerful stuff there from Sheikh Imran Hussein, but the really historic, without any exaggeration, the historic part of the visit was that a representative of mainline, but very scholarly and very Quran-focused Islam, with I think over 30 books to his name, has come with an impeccable Quranic scholarship record to the most persecuted uh, country in the world historically in the name supposedly of Islam by the Ottoman Empire for 600 years and has simply said that it's it was wrong from beginning to end and just to bring one slide uh, on screen which uh, is not as harrowing as some of the others which is displayed at Ziternakabert uh, this is one of the photos which uh, is of absolutely certain provenance it's well known 
this, this was taken by uh, an Ottoman photographer uh, with an Ottoman official uh, holding a morsel of bread tantalizingly out of reach of starving Armenian children. There is no denying what happened in this genocide, nor the numbers of an, a million and a half Armenians killed. And uh, Sheikh Imran has brought a huge wedge into what was usually what was previously uh, a, a united front of Sunni Islam supporting the Ottomans and has said that they were Quranically wrong. So great things could happen from here. Okay, thanks, Alex. Uh, Patrick, we just we're just got four minutes left, so uh, we're going to very quickly run through this. But I just want to very quickly bring on uh, this uh, tweet from WikiLeaks. Uh, Reuters, former CIA engineer convicted in WikiLeaks espionage uh, case. Uh, and this, of course, is uh, Joshua Schulte. Uh, and here is uh, the Reuters article that they linked to here, former CIA engineer convicted. Uh, and they're saying that Schultz has uh, represented himself in the month-long trial. The jury began deliberating on Friday. An earlier trial ended in March 2020, uh, mistrial because jurors deadlocked on the main accounts. And then they quote uh, here today, Schultz has been convicted for one of the most brazen and damaging acts of espionage in, Armenia, in American history. Uh, terrorists, organizations, and other mine influences, malign influences around the world uh, have been battled by the United States, according to the U.S. Attorney Damian Williams, uh, in a statement. Uh, but that uh, uh, point here, the w WikiLeaks. If we think about WikiLeaks and and the fact that this this was this court case was around the Vault Seven leak, leaks in particular, uh, they Vault Seven leaks weren't introduced as part of the extradition hearings for Julian Assange. So the question is, uh, will when he arrives in the United States following his extradition, should it come to that, which of course we know that it's uh, like very, very likely to, will they attempt to bring uh, the Vault 7 leaks into that uh, case now that they have uh, uh, managed to uh, secure a conviction? Um, but uh, Hunter Biden, uh, in sort of related issues, uh, the phone hack claims test platforms misinformation policies. Uh, what's, the, what's the update on uh, Hunter? You're muted. I'm not sure if everybody has had a chance to uh, to, to have a look at the the latest leak uh, from apparently from from Hunter Biden's iCloud um, backup, but it's completely salacious. We're not going to show you any of that uh, material. Of course, it is available. It's being circulated. Um, it appeared on 4chan. Um, here's the story. Here, if you want to flash this up. Hunter Biden phone hack, uh, they're calling it a phone hack, claims uh, the test, it tests platforms misinformation policies. So you can see how the media has immediately um, uh, gone on this. So again, the story isn't the material that could potentially compromise the president of the United States because of the illicit activities of his own son. Uh, and if we go back to um, that Hunter Biden story uh, on The Verge, uh, you'll see uh, 4chan was the venue uh, that this has come out on. So it's uh, on a message board on 4chan and a, a iPhone backup extractor allegedly was used. So this isn't a high level um, hack. I think uh, if you look at the work of investigative journalist Jack Maxey, who's I believe in Switzerland right now, works with Steve Bannon. Uh, he's I think he's intricately involved in all of this um, as well. So this is real material. Um, it's been, I, I think it's been extracted. I might be wrong, but it might have been from the original laptop. So it's not a hack of Hunter Biden's phone per se. This is my understanding of it. 
I, I stand corrected if anybody wants to correct me. My understanding of it is that they've used um, an iPhone backup extractor via Hunter Biden's original laptop data in order to get an iPhone backup copy of the data. And on this, tens of thousands of images, videos, all sorts of things. Hunter Biden doing everything from, you know, selling crack or dividing up, uh, weighing up crack uh, cocaine. And he's with cavorting with various, uh, you know, professional female uh, types in Las Vegas and places like this. There's there's stuff on there with Joe Biden in it as well. So there's enough on there if 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 even a, a small amount of it is authentic and it looks like it very well may be. There's enough on there to absolutely destroy the presidency. So the media's policy on this is is hands off at the moment. Um, and uh, so if if we go to um, so I posted the Hunter Biden, there was a, a, a rap video. There was a montage of this. I posted it on Facebook and within 60 seconds, my account was locked and I've been banned for a month. I'll put up the, uh, the Facebook notice here. Uh, so apparently this was a violation of community standards. And, you know, I thought this stuff was out in public and, you know, there's, it's out there. It's well known. It's been circulated. Everybody on the planet seen it. I put this was kind of a pastiche rap video with the with some montage of all these these clips. I mean, it's unbelievable footage of Hunter Biden smoking crack and, you know, doing all sorts of crazy stuff to music. And so this was Facebook's response. So they're basically saying um, that, well, for, firstly, the reason they've said is that this violated the privacy of the people in in hunter biden's videos so his salacious home videos this is the president of the son the son of the president um this somehow violated uh privacy of the people in the videos and i disagreed and uh, uh with the decision and facebook said because of covid 19 um they won't be able to offer uh any chance to review uh the, my request or my thing so this is facebook's policy so you can you can contest anything, but they won't review it because of COVID. I thought everybody was a remote worker. How could COVID make a difference uh, in terms of reviewing, uh, you know, contesting these sort of things? So I don't I don't get it. So I'm locked out for 60 days. I can't post. I can't comment or anything like that. Uh, but yet the, this material is all over the planet. It's even been published on some international media outlets um, as well. But me as a, as a private citizen, there is a public uh, or as a journalist, this is a there's a public interest to this. This is the son of the president of the United States of America, the head of NATO, the head of the United States, etc. Um, if he's compromised to this degree, then that's a public interest issue. It's basic public interest. So how 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 that can uh, that issue can be ignored and brushed under the carpet. And, and then they're censoring based on uh, that somehow we're violating the privacy of uh, the crack dealers, the hookers, or Hunter Biden is just really incredible. But that's where social media is going, blanket censorship on this. So this would bring down a president in a heartbeat at any other time in history. Different set of rules today. Uh, absolutely a different set of rules, right? We're absolutely out of time. But look, I just want to end uh, with a, a final slide because uh, this has been doing the rounds on, on Twitter in various forms. 
And I think it's absolutely uh, appropriate that we talk about this because uh, if we're looking at how certain information is being presented in the mainstream press, this graphic shows it very well. So this is a tweet from uh, James Melville saying, UK heatwave maps past and present, past cheery sunshine graphics, present scorched earth. And this is looking at the, uh, the weather maps that we see on uh, mainstream television in the UK. On the left-hand side, I guess from the 1980s or 90s, uh, we've got temperatures, uh, you know, everything from 27 degrees to 35 degrees uh, and nice sunshine uh, showing there. And on the right-hand side, uh, the earth has turned red, the UK has turned red with largely the same uh, type of temperatures. It's not just a UK thing uh, because uh, he pushed out the same type of uh, situation in Germany. Uh, of weather maps as they have changed from being nice and green with yellow sunshine on them to gradually getting redder uh, until 2021, we start to see the thing looking like an apocalypse. Um, so very, very briefly, Alex, uh, literally two seconds. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? It's clearly priming the public. And uh, the worst of it is that the BBC has tilted a few years ago the whole of the British Isles so that those parts which are down in the, in the teens and low 20s, uh, Shetland and faraway parts of Northern Ireland, uh, at least from London's point of view, they're even less visible. Yes, indeed. OK, well, we'll talk a bit more about that and other things on Extra in a couple of minutes on the main live stream. Uh, I hope everybody that's a member will join us there. Otherwise, we'll be back uh, on Monday at 1 p.m. as usual. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thank you to uh, Alex, Vanessa and Patrick for joining us today uh, and we will see you then. Bye-bye.